This morning, our reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, And it reads, Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from the land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. They were so frightened, they screamed. Just then, Jesus spoke to them, Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. And as he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, You man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. The word of the Lord. Okay, okay. Come on down. Okay. So, last week we heard a story where Jesus did something amazing. He fed over 5,000 people with just a little lunch. And then this week, we're hearing another story about Jesus doing something amazing. So I wonder if any of you guys have ever been in a boat. Yeah? Yeah? You've been on a ferry? Uh Uh-huh. Yes, yes, you've been on a boat, yes? What kind of boat have you been on? Mm-hmm. A pirate ship? Oh, oh, a fake one. Okay. Okay. What other kind? What kind of boat have you been on? Uh huh. Your grandfather's boat. Pretty cool. What kind of boat have you been on? A speedboat and a ferry. Ada's been on a, a her grandfather's boat and a ferry as well. She would like everyone to know that. Um, so I wonder if you were in a storm on a boat. Well, so we just heard how the disciples were in a boat. Jesus sent them out by themselves onto the sea in a boat, and a storm came up. And then, um, it was a lake. Okay. Um, and then Jesus started, what? What did he start doing to get to the disciples? Walking on the water. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And then what did the disciples do? I wonder how they were feeling when they saw Jesus walking out on the water in the middle of the storm. They thought it was a ghost. They were scared. Yes. Said they screamed. And then, do you remember what Peter did? I wonder what. He walked on the water and then got scared. I wonder what he was feeling 
what Peter was feeling when he stepped out into the water and felt the wind and the waves. I wonder what you have been, would have been feeling. Amazed? Scared? Maybe, yeah. I wonder why Jesus walked on the water in the first place. I don't know. Maybe to come get them, yeah. And I wonder, what do you remember what happened when Jesus and Peter got back in the boat? The wind calmed down, the storm stopped. Yeah, I wonder what the disciples thought when Jesus and Peter got back in the boat. They realized it was Jesus, yeah. Um, I wonder what you would have thought about Jesus if you were there and you saw him do what he did. What would you think? You would go for a swim? (laughs) You would walk on water too? Yeah. Well, um, Jesus did lots of amazing things, and we are going to hear some more about what he did. Thank you guys so much for coming down and listening with me and wondering. Ada wants to preach. She's more than welcome to take a spot. <laughs> Me neither, Ada. It's okay. <laughs> hey, everybody. Good to see y'all. Um, I'm always amazed that, like, we are a church that starts consistently, like, 10 minutes late. And then there's still not that many people here. And then I got up here to preach, and you've all, like, filled it out. It's, it's incredible. Um, I'm feeling a little down today. I realized this morning this is probably going to be my last time preaching in this building. Um, not because my sermon's bad or anything, I hope. Um, I hope I'm invited back. But uh, just, like, before we move last time. Um, and I'm really bummed I didn't get to complete my Oak Church preaching venue punch card. I'm still missing the garden. So I, I got Zoom, parking lot, Godly Play, and, and right here, still missing the garden. I'll have to like come back and preach to the bees and the flowers. <laughs> Pulling Augustine. Okay, my stand-up routine is over. <laughs> now in the, the important stuff. <laughs> so one of my favorite biblical scholars is named Amy Jill Levine. She used to teach New Testament at Vanderbilt University, but now teaches at Hartford International University in Connecticut. Back when she was teaching at Vanderbilt, um, she often described herself as a Yankee Jewish feminist who teaches in a predominantly Protestant divinity school in the buckle of the Bible Belt, which is pretty punchy and way less exciting now. I feel like Yankee Jewish feminist who teaches at a ecumenical uh, interfaith institute in the heart of New England doesn't really have the same punch. (laughs) But she's an amazing scholar for a number of reasons, including her incredible academic range. She's one of the few people who can serve 
on a biblical translation committee while also producing critical work in some niche corner of a theological dialogue that's been going on for a long time. And she also has written some pretty incredible children's books. I think we have some of them in the Godly Play classrooms, actually, if you want to check them out. But she's a true embodiment of the old adage that you don't truly understand something until you can explain it to a five-year-old. In any case, one of the things that I've found most captivating about AJ's work is her ability to take a biblical narrative or a parable, something that I've read or heard hundreds of times, and ask questions that make me feel as if I'm reading that story or parable for the first time. She's also committed to the idea that scripture can mean more than one thing, and that if we settle too quickly or get too dug in on a single interpretation of a given passage, we miss out on the rich tapestry of meaning that comes from reading a text from differing vantage points. So it's in this spirit that I'd like to explore our passage today. I think we can agree that this story of Peter meeting Jesus on waves in the Sea of Galilee is one that's well known in probably every church in the world and for good reason. College, I had a friend named Brad. Brad was from Alabama. And whenever he heard something that would really easily fit into a sermon, Brad would say, that'll preach. So in the words of Brad, Peter walking on water, that'll preach. Jesus walking on water to meet him and say, do not fear, that'll preach. So all we need is some synth pads on the keys, nice quiet room, a few smoke machines. We've got ourselves a really quick altar call. If you grew up in a mainline church, just ask your evangelical friends what, what all those words that I just said are. So my point is that the story of Peter walking on water is one that we know really, really well. And I think that maybe by reading this story again and asking some different questions, we might discover something new about what it means to really know who Jesus is, something new about faith, about seeing Jesus, and about the kingdom of God. Okay, so the story from our passage today gets repeated in three Gospels. It's here in Matthew. It's also found in Mark and John. In all three passages, Jesus feeds a really large crowd, then sends his disciples ahead of him on the lake while he stays back to say goodbye to the crowd, then spends some time in prayer. And in all three passages, a storm rolls in, and Jesus walks on the water and meets his disciples in the middle of the storm, telling them, it's just me, don't be afraid. I think it's really interesting that they're not so much afraid of the storm as they are that Jesus is walking towards them on the water. Um, I don't know how I missed that all this time, but it pretty much says they were afraid of Jesus. In the So read your Bible, everyone. It, uh... But where the passages differ is that in our passage today, Matthew tells about Peter asking Jesus to call him out of the boat and then Peter attempting to walk on the water to meet Jesus. Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water, but then gets scared by the wind and the waves and begins to sink before Jesus rescues him, but not without scolding Peter for his lack of faith. Reading the story again this week, I wondered what Jesus was actually scolding Peter for. Surely Peter had shown great faith 
in the fact that he would be able to walk on water if Jesus wanted him to, Jesus commanded him to. I mean, he's the only one of the 12 who actually stepped out of the boat, who even made an attempt. And what's more, Peter in this story became one of only two people in the Bible who are said to have walked on water. It's not like walking on water was some sort of rite of passage to prove Peter's faith. So what was Jesus upset with Peter for? I wonder if, rather than being upset with Peter for falling into the sea, for being scared when he stepped out of the boat, Jesus was instead scolding Peter for feeling like he needed to try to walk on water at all. I wonder if the doubt to which Jesus refers is not Peter's sudden doubt in his own ability to walk on water after those first few steps, but rather Peter's doubt that it was truly Jesus walking toward the boat uh, on the water. I can almost hear in Jesus' words to Peter, why did you need to come out here to prove that it was me? If you would have just stayed in the boat, we wouldn't be having this problem right now. Why didn't you take me at my word that it was me walking up to the boat? But Peter gets a redemption arc just a few verses later in Matthew 15 and 16. Again, we read that Jesus feeds a crowd of thousands. And again, the disciples wonder how they'll ever get enough food to feed such a large crowd. After that, Jesus warns the disciples to not be like the Pharisees, who require sign after sign to maintain their faith. Then Jesus has this famous conversation with Peter that goes something like this. Jesus asked this question to all his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? The disciples proceed to list the greatest players in Israel's history. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Some people thought that Jesus was a reincarnation of the things that had been good for Israel before, that Jesus was the type of Messiah that would come back and make Israel great again, so to speak, by restoring it to some former prophetic glory. But Peter at last sees the truth and acknowledges that Jesus was not turning back the clock, but doing something brand new, building a kingdom here on earth that John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah and the prophets had only dreamed about. Peter declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. He doesn't need any more signs or miracles to be convinced. He's sure of who Jesus is. The Peter who was scolded in Matthew 14 for his incredible lack of faith here becomes the rock of faith on which Christ promises to build his church in Matthew 16. All because he moved from wondering, is that really you, Lord? To declaring with great faith, yes, it's you. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Faith has always been a difficult concept for me to define. I grew up in and around traditions in which faith was a pretty buzzy word that got thrown into sermons and songs and advice without ever really being explained. Faith was just one of those things that you were kind of supposed to understand inherently. Maybe you couldn't provide a dictionary definition of faith, but you knew faith when you saw it. Unfortunately, in those circles that I spent a lot of time in, faith was also often weaponized 
used as a means of shaming those who were suffering or struggling. I don't think this weaponization was necessarily intentional, or even that those who weaponized the concept of faith knew what they were doing. But I've heard more than too many sermons about healing in which the sick are blamed for their ongoing sickness because of their own lack of faith. More than too many sermons in which those who are struggling or suffering are encouraged to just have faith, as if they haven't been crying out to God for relief day after day. I often wondered how it only took faith the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain, yet not having enough faith meant that you were relegated to suffering until you crossed a threshold of sufficient faith for healing. So in reading this passage today, one that's often used as sort of rallying cry for faith, I wondered what it actually means to have the type of faith that Jesus was looking for in his followers. And I think I found somewhat of an answer in the story of Jesus' encounter with a Canaanite woman. So sandwiched in the middle of these stories about the disciples and the Pharisees and their lack of faith, Jesus is approached by a woman as he's traveling from town to town preaching the good news. The woman has a daughter who's suffering from the effects of demon possession and is crying out to Jesus for help. This makes sense. Delivering people from demon possession was somewhat of a specialty for Jesus. But rather than jumping into action to help this woman's daughter in acute need, Jesus just ignores her at first. She continues to follow Jesus and his disciples, shouting and begging for Jesus to help her, to the point that the disciples ask Jesus to send her away so she'll stop yelling at them. Jesus goes to talk to her, but instead of responding with compassion and granting her request for healing, he says, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. This woman was a Canaanite, one of the native people of the land of Israel who were typically treated as outcasts in Jewish society. It sure seems like in this moment, Jesus is kind of actively excluding this woman from participation in his kingdom. The woman continues to beg Jesus to help her, and in a response that makes him look like a real jerk, Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The woman, maybe out of boldness or maybe out of desperation, replies, yes it is. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus responds then by exclaiming that the woman has great faith and by telling her that her request for healing has been granted. This unnamed woman's great faith was not celebrated because she had performed some miraculous feat. She didn't feed a crowd of thousands with enough food for a small picnic. She didn't walk out into the middle of a stormy lake and not get scared by the wind and the waves. She was commended for her faith because she saw what Jesus was about, and she fully committed to being a part of it, even if that seemed impossible at the time. She saw that Jesus was building a kingdom of hope, healing, and hospitality, and she knew that no cultural difference or other dividing line could stand in the way of that kingdom. She knew that Jesus was all about healing the sick, restoring the weary. And she wasn't going to rest until she could participate in that work. 
This was the faith that Jesus praised. A faith that saw through barriers of gender and culture, a faith that was committed to the work of healing even when it didn't seem possible, a faith that knew who Jesus was and didn't need to be called out of the boat to be proven right. Returning to our main passage, Jesus didn't criticize Peter's lack of faith on the Sea of Galilee because he failed to walk on water, but because he felt the need to get out of the boat at all. This man who had followed Jesus around and watched him care for the poor and needy, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, restore sight to the blind, and turn a picnic lunch into an abundant feast, was still missing the point, still uncertain that Jesus was who he said he was. In this moment, Peter thought that true faithfulness in Christ's kingdom was found in stepping out of the boat forcing creation to bend to his will by breaking the laws of nature and walking on water. In reality, Jesus had already shown Peter and all of the disciples what true faithfulness in Christ's kingdom was all about earlier that day. The type of faith that Jesus was looking for was not one that would do miracles for miracles' sake, but one that committed to Jesus' work of hope, healing, and hospitality. Jesus is looking for a faith that doesn't need to get out of the boat. Faith that doesn't need another sign to be reminded about who Jesus is. Throughout the history of the church, being faithful has not required followers of Jesus to walk on water, but to join Jesus in the works of redemption, renewal, and rest that he does in the world. Right faith in Jesus doesn't lead us to trying to continually confirm that faith through increasingly greater and greater signs and wonders, but to working out our faith by being about what Jesus was about. Feeding the hungry, healing the sick, making room for the outcast. So I read this passage about faith and storms and being sent out. I can't help but think about Oak Church and our upcoming move. As we leave this place of familiarity and security, where God made abundance out of nothing, it can feel at times like we are being sent out to the sea and into a storm. I think it would be really easy during this season of transition to be like Peter, to want to get out of the boat, so to speak, to look for some sign above and beyond what we've already been given in order to prove to ourselves that we're on the right track, that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But I think that faithfulness in this season instead looks like continuing to trust in the slow work of God in our church, in the neighborhood, in this city. Faithfulness in this season looks like staying in the boat, trusting that Jesus will continue to meet us there in the middle of the storm to help us be about the work of hope, healing, and hospitality that he's called us to share with him. Would you all pray with me? God, you send us out in faith to place our lives in your hands and to wholeheartedly commit to following you. We confess that we find this difficult to do. It's not always easy to follow where you lead, to turn away from our own personal wants and desires, to let go of our safety nets and trust that you will provide for us in all things. Open our eyes to see past our own interests and concerns 
to your broader vision for us, for our world. In Jesus' name, amen.